You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies. Hello, retro movie lovers. It's a new year and it's time to go punk in a big way. I'm really excited talking about one of my all-time favorite films, a movie that means so much to me. I can't even describe it right now. But, uh, you know, I'm happy to be joined by a a brand new friend here. Uh, You guys all know him. He's the guy that runs the awesome website, Gamer Guys Review. Uh, Yeah, everybody, roll it in. I should have asked you before this, do you like William or Will better? Uh... Either or is fine. I, I, I prefer William, but Will's okay. Okay, I'll call you William. So everybody, welcome William to the show. Hey, what's going on, man? You know, uh, when someone says something like that, my first reaction is, I want to end the conversation. Oh. You know something? You're all right. <laughs> exactly. So many so many quotes from this movie that will just stick in your head. Even if you don't even remember where they came from, there's certain lines in this movie that will stick forever. So yeah, we're rolling with the cult punk classic. Like I want to say this movie was so popular for about 20 years. And I want to say like the last five years or so, like the talk about it has gone a little bit quiet. Like, I don't know why, but uh, I, I'm hoping people, this is a nice blast from the past from people. We're talking about the one and only repo man, me and uh, William here. We're rolling off the same page here. We're rolling off the, uh, the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, uh, which I think is the latest release. But as you guys know, this movie has been released in various DVDs from anywhere from Anchor Bay to Universal to to UK Blu-rays and everything. Like, I have this movie on so many formats, it's not even funny. But we're rolling off the uh, Criterion Collection one. And we got it paused right at, like, the 13-second mark. For some reason, uh, Criterion put their logo ahead of this, so we're going to skip past that. And we're going on the black, that's right before the old school Universal uh, MCA company logo. So we got it black screen. I'm going to say one, two, three, go. And when you hear me say the word go, everybody, if you're following along with a disc or a stream or whatever the hell you got, or maybe a tape, who knows, hit play. You got your remote in hand ready to go, William? I do. All right, everybody. One, two, three, go. All right, beautiful, beautiful Starfield, which, like, I know, like, people don't really talk about opening titles this much, but I gotta say, like, this opening title, this old school Universal, like, it's actually, like, a really good special effect when you look at it compared to, like, shit that was in space movies of the time. It is. It's it's a classic logo. But what is not classic is these stripped-down punk rock opening uh, titles, wouldn't you say? No, I I think uh, the opening credits to Repo Man are iconic. They they fit in with the whole motif of this movie. That's what I'm saying. Like, don't you think they 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 kind of go along with the uh, the canned food look a little bit? <laughs> you know, in a way, when you, when you think about it like that, yeah, it kind of does. Yeah. Which you know, there there's a, there's a funny story behind the whole generic products that are prevalent throughout the movie. I want to say, too, like this time, I've been watching that UK Blu-ray for years until this version came out. And I really kind of just repurchased this Criterion version to get all the extras, you know. But uh, Mm -hmm. for some reason, the first time uh, me watching this copy, it made me realize that um, it looks like the opening titles, or at least that like map thing, it has a very video-ish look to it. 
It does. Uh, I actually got the Criterion Edition myself recently during a, a Barnes & Noble's Black Friday sale. And it's funny, for the longest while, I had this movie on VHS. And, you know, while this is a great transfer and all, I feel like there's something missing with the fact that it's, it's at a higher, cleaner resolution. Because on VHS, I, I think that the grainy look of it actually fits the movie. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, I, like I'm very much the guy who's all about trying to get the highest quality of uh, any movie, just in terms of um, trying to uh, approximate what the original film print looked like. But like in a weird way, like, and I know Texas Chainsaw Massacre is another one where people feel like the shittier looks the better. But I gotta say, like this time, this one too, and I have very vivid memory of going to purchase the VHS of this at a store called Media Play, which is long out of existence. But I remember watching that VHS copy for, you know, I don't know, roughly three or four years until the Anchor Bay DVD came out, and I bought that. But yeah, that VHS copy, man, it's it's solid in a way that's like, like I don't know how to describe it. Like it, it almost is, and and if you really want like a taste almost of what that feels like, they do have the the weird alternate TV version on this Criterion disc, and it has somewhat of a VHS look to it as well. But I know what you mean. Like this movie, like I think it plays very well both in a you know a, a clean like format, and also in a very grungy format like VHS or better yet, better yet, I'd say broadcast cable back in the day. And uh, side note, say what you will about the movie, but I did appreciate the fact that the 2018 Halloween movie used Repo Man at, at a certain point. It's what the kid's watching uh, when the babysitter's watching the little kid. Yeah, I totally, you're right about that. I totally forgot about that, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this scene that's playing on the TV when she walks in on the kid to put him to bed. And I was like, hey, Repo Man, all right. Yeah, and like uh, th this scene in particular, like it's kind of funny, but like all these kind of like almost Western feeling scenes that are in the movie, like this, and then like when later on when Otto's by the train tracks and stuff, like even though like the movie takes place in Los Angeles, like I don't know why, like you, even even when it's like in the middle of the city, like you always feel like it's almost like a a weird Western feeling lawlessness, like like it's like takes place in an older time than it even really does. Well, that's funny. That's the same way I feel about Repo Man is that, you know, while a lot of people say it, it's a punk movie, I also get a lot of Western vibes from the movie, especially with, with like you said, even though it's set in L.A., it's set in the boonies of L.A., and there's a sort of outlaw, outlawish feel to that part of town uh, that we see throughout the movie. Definitely, like, uh, especially whenever you see Otto, like, coming back home, how much of a track it is for him to get back home to where his parents live. And then also, too, I think it's intentional, but um, a lot of the places where they repossess the cars are definitely, like, in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. We got to talk about this. I, I, I say, like, this this scene in particular, like, you'll really get the feel and the essence of what this movie's going for with this scene right here. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, Napoleon Dynamite on the left singing about <laughs> seven up. Exactly. Good old John Hedder in his early days. But actually, actually, no, what is funny, I'll, and I'll bring this up as a piece of trivia, but the guy who, who plays the nerd here, Kevin, he actually went on to become like uh, a band member and one of the bands that provide music for Repo Man, uh, the Circle Jerks. Yeah, like, like, there's, like, a really weird, like, incestuous, like, like becoming obsessed with this movie. Like, I, I kind of got 
into this movie when I first got into punk rock in my late teens, early 20s. And, like, yeah, like, I feverishly devoured any kind of bit of trivia or anything to do with this this movie. First with the soundtrack and then with the movie. I actually kind of discovered the soundtrack first so that it was kind of weird when I finally did watch the movie. And I had seen the movie, like, as a kid, bits and pieces on cable. But, I, you know, I remember, like, the flying car and shit. But, like, mm-hmm. I didn't really remember, like, the whole kind of, you know, ethics and feel of it. And so, like, yeah, by the time I actually sat down to watch the movie, it's, you know, like, because as you know, the music and the soundtrack was a big deal. Like, I think when the movie came out, I think the soundtrack actually made more money than the movie did, supposedly. But it's like, yeah, like, the music is so uh, just tied to this movie because even though, you know, everybody says, oh, it's a punk movie, like, the soundtrack is very, like, eclectic and, and strange. It is because you have, you have not only punk punk acts like Iggy Pop, Black Flag, and Circle Jerks. You also have like more esoteric groups like I think there's a group called Juicy Bananas or something like yeah. that. I know <laughs> I know there's a group called the Plugs. Yeah. And uh and also also too like um I can't remember if it's exactly if it's the plugs or wh- which one of the bands, but the like the main whatever band does like the main score. Um Tito Lariva, so like a lot of people know from uh like from Dust the Dawn and stuff. Like I was surprised he was working on film score shit like this early, like way before then. And uh I actually got to see his band Tito and Tarantula uh in the late nineties. It was like really cool. I th- I think he's actually a pretty underrated musician. But yeah, that opening scene with the generic ass supermarket and then this scene, uh, you know, with with Otto kind of does his little rebellion and kind of tells the square boss to, you know, basically go fuck off as any real punk would. And then this scene, which with uh, Otto's girlfriend Debbie, who like they never address it, but she has a British accent. But Debbie, and kind of how their relationship falls apart because she's you know uh, not faithful to him, and just you know he splits out of here. He kind of doesn't belong anywhere, and that's why I think it's cool about it is as much as it's a punk movie and Otto is a punk, he doesn't really fit into the straight world like a punk shouldn't. But he also doesn't really fit into the punk world because he's also in some ways more of like. I don't know. I always got him as like almost like a he's a young guy, but he's almost like an old fashioned character. Like he doesn't really belong in either of the worlds. Yeah, that's that's the same feeling I get from Otto as well. Is that he's he's neither nor yet as as the film progresses, he does go to like sort of a, a character arc because you know like here at the beginning he's sitting by the railroad tracks, you know, singing the song, but then not not after that, not long after that, he he meets uh, Bud joins the repo agency and basically kind of grows up in the process that is until you know the stuff with the malibu happens and then some tensions arise between uh not just his eventual girlfriend layla but also his sort of mentor bud yeah and that scene with the train tracks so you know i was talking about this movie plays good on any format i always remember that scene having a beautiful look on the vhs and the dvd and then like even more the colors now on the blu-ray like I don't know, like, I have to say that was probably the scene, and then also, too, like, I just always liked the song TV Party, which he starts singing, but, like, that 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 little scene of, of him and the loneliness and out by the train tracks and the bushes, it, like, it definitely, like we were talking about earlier, has, like, that kind of, like, I don't know, guy lost in the West kind of feel, like, I don't know, like, it's just, like, I think that scene more than anything is what hooked me into this movie the first couple times I watched it, and, like, what hooked me into the auto character. And, like, it's kind of funny because, like, there's a lot of scenes where 
Otto's almost just like an observer. He's almost like the audience's eyes into this world of Repo Men. So he doesn't really almost have a character in a lot of scenes. But the scenes, yeah. the scenes that are focused on his character, like the train track scene, if, if for some reason like those scenes didn't make it into the movie or or something like that, like or cut out, like I think the movie would suffer greatly because it's like you really only learn who Otto is in these little kind of snippets here and there, like that. Yeah. I, th- I think for me, what the turning point is for Otto's character is when he returns home to his parents and he's all like, hey, dad, you know how you promised me a thousand bucks if I if I finish high school? Well, I, I want to finish high school, but first I'd like the money. He's like, no, son, we send all- that money off to, to Bibles that are going to be sent to the people in Central America. And he's like, all right, that's it. <laughs> exactly and, and like I, I i think it's one of those things because i've I haven't viewed every alex cox film uh but I've, I've seen quite a few i'd say i've seen probably more than half of his filmography and uh he's a very unique storyteller but i i think this is one of his better movies in terms of like the way the story comes out because there's a lot of subtle scenes like that where it's like almost blink if you miss it or if you're not like a a real observant viewer like i think you miss a lot of the emotional beats because like what you said like when Otto goes home to his family and you see that his family is these kind of like zoned out kind of hippie parents like obsessed with like you know cable tv ministries and whatever like mm-hmm. like you kind of see the how he would it was kind of abandoned probably at an early age and that and that's probably like what led him into the punk lifestyle there yeah well, actually, it's funny. It's like even even though Repo Man is one of my favorite movies, and Alex Cox is one of my favorite film directors, this this is the only film of his that I that I've seen, and I I do want to see the other films he's done, like you know Sid and Nancy and Walker and stuff like that. But just for some reason, I haven't gotten around to it. Yeah, like uh, like I had I had actually seen Sid and Nancy quite a bit on cable when I was a kid, so I was pretty familiar with it. That and Repo Man, I I had caught bits of cable, so I was I was pretty familiar with these movies, but I didn't really get into them and like kind of rediscovered them until my early twenties. And like and I went back to Sid and Nancy because I was a big fan of Sex Pistols and I read multiple Sex Pistol biographies. And like I feel like Sid and Nancy gets a bum rap because it's not historically accurate uh, in, in a lot of ways. But I, th- I f- but I feel like if you go into it knowing that first of all, and you just look at it as a movie, like literally a motion picture, and you don't you don't, you don't worry about okay what was the real life relationship and repercussions between Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongeon or whatever. If you just look at it as like almost like a weird punk rock fairy tale movie, it's actually like a very well done motion picture. Um, yeah. And I would, I would, even though it it kind of is like a rock biography, I would look at it more of a punk rock love story than a true life story. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was doing some research on Alex Cox before we started doing his commentary, and apparently he 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 says he's blacklisted by by Hollywood due to uh, his experiences working on Walker. Yeah, and uh, Walker was a historical film with Ed Harris, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. And yeah. it basically, it was one of those things where it, I've never seen the film myself, but from what I understand, it, it might have been one of the stories or one of the screenplays maybe that was like kind of almost unfilmable. So when they did do it, it just seemed like the production descended into chaos and... You know, it seemed mm-hmm. like the, they went over budget or whatever happened. And it's like, yeah, and it's like, but it's kind of crazy 
that that was so long ago. Like, I want to say Walker was the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. It, it was. It was late 80s. Yeah, it's just crazy. Because especially in this day and age where I'd say like the last 10 years in particular, you know, with the internet kind of turning, you know, somewhat cult films into really popular cult films. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, with the the long life that Repo Man, like I'm kind of surprised like somebody at some point, I mean, hell, if Richard Stanley can get back into the game of directing pretty, you know, decently budgeted films, I don't know why Alex Cox couldn't, other than I could see possibly Alex Cox not being interested in a project that would be commercial enough for somebody to back, you know what I mean? Well, I've I read a couple of interviews with Alex and he said that he's perfectly fine with, uh, what he does nowadays because he still does movies, but a lot of them are they're low budget, they're crowd they're crowdfunded, so it means he doesn't have a lot of money to work with, but he has a lot of creative control over what gets to happen. Because I think the one of the more recent films he did was a film called Tombstone Rashomon, if I recall correctly. Yeah, like I I haven't seen that one. I've seen part of Repo Chick. And, like, I gotta say, like, for a guy who really has a real command of, of filmmaking skills, like, I don't know, like, it probably is just time and budget, but his low-budget stuff that I've seen, to me, it just it just doesn't even come anywhere near something like a, a Repo Man or Sid and Nancy or even, like, a Straight to Hell uh, type yeah. thing. Like, like, with Repo Man in particular, like, I have to say, like, I mean, there's a few kind of bits and bobs of this movie where the storytelling kind of gets loosey-goosey and scenes kind of feel like a little you know extraneous or whatever but for the most part for like i mean for this basically being a movie where it was literally just actors uh, you know cars and a camera like i think the guy crafts like a pretty cinematic world and like that's why i was really surprised uh, well not surprised but just disappointed to see something like repo chick and you know and just kind of hard for me to get into because i was just like you know a lot of times like i feel like i can usually see something through a low budget or through you know poor equipment or whatever but like yeah just like i don't know it's just like or maybe it's just me being more of a film fan you know back in the days uh when stuff was cut together with film but like yeah like his older shit i think is the best well it's funny what you mentioned earlier about repo man how it's just like a bunch of scenes with actors and cars and whatnot because i i see repo man as a film about nothing but also about something because for a good portion of the movie, it's just repo repo men doing repo man stuff. You know, it isn't until like the last 30 minutes or so of the movie that the plot takes center stage and, you know, the stuff with the Malibu becomes more prominent. Yeah. Like, uh, we haven't really been going scene by scene, but I mean, it's hard to with this, with this type of movie, just because there's so much surrounding it. Uh, there's mm-hmm. so much that you want to talk about. Um, but, but, but yeah, like basically what we've been seeing here is like basically his introduction. First, he kind of becomes a repo man, like, like really through a trick, Harry Dean kind of throws him a line about, Hey, you got to help me. You know, my wife is sick. Help. We got to get our car out of this bad neighborhood before it gets broken into or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he kind of repos the man, repos the car, like not knowing it. And then when he, like, is initially introduced to all the other repo men at the office, he, like, a punk rocker, he just rejects it. I love the scene where, where they offer him a beer, and he just, once he finds out they're all repo men, he just pours the beer on the, uh, yeah. to the floor in a defiant act. Like, 
But yeah, this it, like I don't know if you ever, I'm sure you picked up on it, but like how the bus has the header of Edge City on it. So it's like I never knew, even though this is clearly Los Angeles, I never knew if Alex Cox was trying to like put this in a fictional setting or not. No, I'm pretty sure it, you know it's supposed to be Los Angeles, but it's like a you know it's it's a film version of Los Angeles where you know there's a, a car being repossessed every every five minutes and there's more and more people going broke because that's another thing I know I noticed is like late, later on, especially in shots where, where like autos walking down the street, the, the 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 how I describe it. Poverty becomes more of a character in of itself because the city becomes more run down. There's more bums and winos walking about the street and generic products are taking over more, more of the stores. Cause like, you know, you know, the shootout later on the convenience store. Yeah. Have you, have you, have you ever noticed like, uh, on the back wall with all the alcoholic drinks lined up, they're all just generically named. Whereas earlier when they go to get, get some drinks, they're all name brand. So yeah. I kind of see that as like consumerism taking over the city and the characters are oblivious to it. Yeah, for sure. Like like what I always got into, because I mean, obviously they couldn't, you know, financially or whatever, uh, outfit the entire stores and stuff with completely like either the generic or, and, it, and if you look, there's some labels of the fake brands where it looks like some of the fake brands are actually fake, which I guess we should preface, uh, I do remember that that white and blue packaging on products back in the day, but it I mean it wasn't nearly as prevalent as like what you see in this one. Like you would never like walk down like a whole aisle away in a store and see it, you know what I mean? But like when yeah. you, when you did see it, and I think I usually saw it more on stuff like the popcorn and stuff, like more like snack foods, but when you did see it uh, even as a kid, I uh I it stuck out as like like something is wrong here, something is strange. It was like really weird because you know, packaging in general for name brands, even kind of generic name brands, they always try to like pick a theme, uh, a logo, a uh, you know, a, a, they every brand tries to usually pick a color or at least a color scheme that identifies itself. And yeah, yeah. when everything is white or blue with the same font, it it, it 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 casts a very strange feel even when you just look at it. You know, like I I will say one thing I'm disappointed in is I would have. Uh, love to try the generic beer because that was a real one that was one of the real ones i think later when they get a drink and it just says drink i think you can see it's just a sticker on it that just says <laughs> drink but uh but yeah like like those brands were like so insane and uh and then like sometimes in the liquor store too you can see like the real name brands they kind of just turn backwards so you can't see them yeah yeah although it, it is funny because they say like they got a lot of those generic name products from a grocery store but yeah the people that they did receive sponsor from or the people that sell the little, the little Christmas trees that you can hang in a car. And if you look closely in a lot of scenes, when people are driving cars, you can see a little Christmas tree dangling on the rear view mirror. Exactly. I think there's even a line of dialogue where like they take one out and look at it or something. They say you find one in every car. So it's uh, like, yeah, it's like going back to what you were saying with the poverty and the winos everywhere. And then we see them, we see dead winos being collected and we see, yeah, we see uh, dead winos. Uh, some of them, like the, the one character later, when he's dead on a bench, they just light him up with a flamethrower. I like. I think there's what I loved about this movie. Uh, you know, when I rediscovered it when I was older, is like there's the movie that you know of. Like here, drink. Yeah, I think you can see the stickers on it. But like, there's the movie that's like kind of going on in the foreground that we're following here with Otto and Bud. But there's also kind of like this this background movie. 
of this society that's like obviously in what appears to be like kind of like a financial crisis and mm-hmm. and basically just human beings becoming disposable and like like it's it's very subtle and i have to say to really fully pick up on it you probably almost have to watch the movie two or three times but like yeah like i think that was another brilliant thing that alex cost did with not just setting this in just like really more like the normal world but creating a backdrop of this weird society because mm-hmm. his buddy kevin uh after they lose their jobs in the supermarket he's even like dreaming of like becoming a fry cook and like a manager at a burger king mcdonald's and he's talking about it like that would be a great career which is like sad but like that kind of is like you know yeah a career nowadays mm-hmm. well we're out on the la river and we're about to be introduced to the to the rodriguez brothers yeah, they're kind of like the, uh, for our main repo guys, they're kind of like the, uh, I guess they're like the competitors from their own shop. And like, like they kind of yeah. build them up like, like, like they can nab just about any car out there, I'd say. They do. But I gotta, I gotta say, like, another thing that, that I love about this movie and, and kind of just like a, a trope or a genre that I eat up with a spoon anyway is, I'm always a sucker, especially with male characters. You see, I think you see it more than female characters, even in films. But I'm always a sucker for the the kind of like older man mentor and like the young whatever uh, yeah. guy. Like I remember there was a really good one where uh, uh, maybe about 15 years ago with Robert Forster, and I want to say it was maybe Donnie Wahlberg or somebody where, where, where like they were kind of like learning the diamond trade. It was called like Diamond Men or something like that. But like I'm always a sucker for that thing and like the thing that i think is great is like how we talk about Otto being a punk that doesn't really fit in with the real punk crowd like i feel like him and bud like as like even though he kind of like adopts bud's lifestyle of you know not sleeping sleeping whatever two hours a day and you know snorting speed and all that shit to stay up to go keep going and repossessing more cars like as much as he had he adopts like bud's lifestyle it's like at the same time I feel like there's a kinship between them where it's like it's like Bud is almost like the older version of Otto that like Otto would have ended up being 20 30 years from now anyway. Like it's kind of weird like I kind of feel like they almost have like a weird soulmate thing going on. Mhm. I really do yeah, I really do like the uh the chemistry between uh Harry Dean and Emilio Estevez cuz it's like you know later on uh Harry Dean's character Bud is He's kind of become he 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 starts to go against his own code. He he becomes delusioned, you know. To you know, he gets focused on the car and like, oh, what I could, what I could do with the money? I could start my own repo company and everybody does the hard work and I just sit back and watch. And it, it results in him nearly getting fatally wounded be, because of it. And yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really funny too because it's like, and I think you know what we've been talking about with the generic products, which. You know, we should say, too, that uh, Otto's buddies, like, it's kind of a recurring theme is whenever him and Bud go into a store or something, they're just narrowly missing Otto's uh, ex-girlfriend and his friends, uh, Archie, right. like, uh, and the other guy, guy played by Dick Root, I'm blanking on his character name right now, but he's always just, they're just narrowly missing them robbing a store, and obviously that becomes a bigger part later on. Yeah. But, I thought I thought this was good. I love this character actor here, Cy Richardson, who's like kind of like a secondary mentor to Otto. And like I love that they try to play this trick 
of this kind of like fancy lady in this nice car. Otto's going to throw a rat in it. And I'm guessing the object was she would jump out of the car and then they could take the yeah. car. But yeah. Although although it's funny, Cy Richardson, he'd later turn up in Emil Estevez's uh, first movie, uh, Men at Work, pretty much playing the same character, type of character yeah. that he does in Repo Man. And like he's great in the movie, but anybody who's a fan of the Repo Man soundtrack, the track with the, uh, I'm pretty sure he re-recorded like a lot of his lines from the movie, but the track where Cy Richardson is just talking over it, <laughs> over some of the score, and he's given his ethics and his codes and stuff, his rules of what he does. It's it's hilarious. I was just listening to that yesterday, but yeah. uh, I love that shot too. Like when because uh, Cy just like kind of like. He just, like, peels out chasing the lady and leaves Otto in the middle. Like, we should say the lady uh, may sprayed Otto in the eyes. And, uh, yeah, Otto, like, I just love that. It's just kind of like a sad shot where it's, like, the POV of, like, out the back of the car and Otto just kind of, like, stumbling around in the middle of the street by himself, rubbing his eyes. Like, he can't, he's blind. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it shows that, yeah, he's, he's still, he's, he's still learning the ropes of being a repo man. He's not quite there yet. Yeah. And this is, this is, this is kind of like, Almost, I'd say, not exactly, because there is a lot of humor in this movie, but I'd say this is one of the most overtly humorous scenes here where this guy, like, they paint him up like he's got to be rich uh, with this Cadillac or whatever it is, but he's, he's like, in a laundromat, kind of like, you know, kind of like a rundown neighborhood's laundromat, and he's, like, giving uh, instructions to the kids how to wash his clothes because he he, he needs their clothes to get out of uh, the dryers or whatever they're right there because he needs to sit in his car and wash his clothes. I just thought it was hilarious, and when Otto takes his car, he runs out, and then it's a funny little bit where the kids toss all his clothes out into the street and shit. Yeah, Repo Repo Man is a very funny movie, but in a subversive way. Because you don't pick up on a lot of the humor on first viewing. It's only on repeated viewings that you really do start to pick up on the jokes and the, the hidden gags throughout. For sure. And going back to Alex Koss, I, I, w- I would say the main trilogy of films out of all his work, and granted, I haven't seen some, like I haven't seen Walker or whatever, but I would say it would be a great trilogy or maybe a triple feature on like a long Sunday afternoon or something to sit down, watch... Uh, Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, and then even though Repo Man's personally my favorite, I think his probably most, like, his best, like, absolute masterpiece of a film is actually one called Highway Patrolman. Have you ever seen this film, William? Uh, no, no, I haven't. What's it about? It's really awesome. You wouldn't even think that Alex Cox directed it, but it's literally about a highway patrolman in Mexico. The whole film's in Spanish. It's subtitled. And it's, it's, it, it it's it's hard to explain because it's like there's a lot of great desert scenes, uh, almost so the similar of the uh, the uh, the opening Repo Man. Uh, I'd, I'd say in a lot of ways, it, it, I wouldn't doubt if uh, the film was uh, inspired a lot by the film Electric Light and Blue with Robert Blake. But it's really just this story about this guy who comes from a real impoverished background in Mexico trying to make money for his family uh he he he, uh becomes a cop where he gets promoted to being a highway patrolman on a motorcycle and then obviously Mm -hmm. there's like you know it's it's similar to repo man in a lot of ways in terms of like you kind of gotta like the film's about watching him become a highway patrolman and you know the shit that there's a lot of corruption with criminals and whatnot and you know the film kind of turns violent halfway through or whatnot and it just uh I don't know, like, it's, it's it's just a breathtaking film in terms, like, I would almost say, like, in a weird way, like, 
it it almost like reminds me of like a cross between Repo Man and then like something like uh, the very early Robert Origa stuff, especially like El Mariachi. Like it just has that frenetic pace during the action scenes, and then during the slow character uh, things. Like it's just I don't know. Like it it almost feels like you're watching reality. It's so well done. So I would definitely recommend uh, Highway Patrolman. It was something that like. I would say I used to play on like IFC and Sundance like all the time in the late 90s, like around 96, 97. The film's originally from, I think, around 91-ish. But uh, yeah, definitely. I think it's kind of his, as much as Repo Man is my favorite Alex Cox film, I think Highway Patrolman is definitely his masterpiece. Okay. Yeah, I'll definitely have to keep keep a lookout for it because, like I said, Repo Man is the only film film of his that I've seen, so I've yet to see the others. So I'm definitely going to keep a lookout for it and Sid and Nancy. Yeah, for sure. And it's 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 funny too because, like, as much as I'd say his better known stuff, like Repo Man and Sid and Nancy, like you could kind of see like the you know okay, I I could see why the the director of Repo Man would would want to make Sid and Nancy. Like, yeah, like, like I almost think in a weird way, like, Highway Patrolman might be more, uh, like, up his alley in terms of, like, what he likes cinematically. Because, like, he, like, he hosted a show in the UK for many years. He oh. did. It, it was called Movie Drome, yeah. if I recall. Yeah, Movie Drome. I, was, I almost said Video Drome, but I knew it was something else. Yeah, Movie Drome, where he would kind of, like, do interviews with, you know, especially filmmakers that kind of make, like, these fringe and independent films and whatnot. So it's, like... It's weird. It's weird. Like I can't think of any other director like that who might have been known more at one given time as more of a TV host than even a director. But he actually hosted that show like after he made like Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, and all these. But I guess yeah. it kind of shows the hustle he had to be on to make a living. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, apparently, Alex Cox is. Uh, oh, I said Cox. Whoops. Uh, Alex oh. Cox. <laughs> Alex Cox is apparently a, uh, a fan of the Godzilla movies because when Criterion put out that uh, collection, that Godzilla collection on Blu-ray, one of the special features is an interview with Alex Cox about why he loves the the original Godzilla movies. And I was like, oh, wow, I learn something new every day. Yeah, like uh, I've, there's there's actually excerpts too, also a video drone. Uh, I'm sorry, I keep saying video, uh, movie, movie drone on YouTube. Yeah. And I remember some of the the first ones I seen was actually him talking about Godzilla. So it actually is interesting. It's kind of weird too um, with the modern day, like what's going on now. Some of the filmmakers that they got to make some of the current Godzilla movies, um, they may not be on the weird enough weird length, wavelength as Alex Cox was, but definitely some weird. Uh, like it's it's really surprising that so many people that come out of the world of independent film are obsessed with Godzilla. Yeah, it it, it is. Yeah, the more I think about it, yeah, it is, because, like, you know, the guy who did the most recent Godzilla movie, he did stuff like Krampus and Trick or Treat, and now yeah. he's helming a giant monster movie, of all things, you know? Exactly. It, it, it's really interesting, yeah, it kind of shows, like, how far the film industry has come when we let the guys who are big fans of the genre stuff helm the, the mainstream stuff, whereas before, we just, you know, Get Spielberg to do this movie. Now it's just well, let's let let's let these guys take a shot at the blockbusters. Exactly, and like it's kind of funny because I think sometimes that works out for the worse. And I think in the worst case scenarios, it's those guys basically just get used as studio puppets. But I think yeah. I think sometimes when it works out for the best is when you can see because uh, you know a lot of studio blockbusters are constructed in a very formulaic way. Like I mean, 
I'm a fan of both independent films and also studio films, but like, I think the bad thing about studio films is just how they become so rote and kind of like yes, beyond very, formulated, very predictable. Yeah, and it's always nice when those independent guys make one because sometimes they just throw in maybe like a character quirk or like a you know just like a weird scene or a detour in the story that you think probably wouldn't have come in otherwise. Well, speaking of detours, we have the lattice of coincidence scene, aka probably my favorite scene in all of Repo <laughs> yeah. Man, because I, I think this scene does epitomize Repo Man and what it is. For sure. So just talk a little bit. We we should say too, it's a scene between Otto and the great Tracy Walter, who are uh, espousing some philosophy here over a, a roaring dumpster or trash barrel fire. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, and by the way, you know, his Tracy Walters' character is named Miller, and there are two other characters named Bud and Light. Get it? Yeah. You know, the, and, I, and, and I really do like Tracy Walter. He, he's he's become one of, one of my like my favorite character actors in recent memories, simply because he's he's kind of like an actor like Dick Miller, who you know he shows up in a movie. And it's like, oh hey, it's that guy. You know, he was also in Batman. He was the, the Joker's right hand man. He was he was in the Conan the Barbarian sequel. I think the most recent thing he had did was he made appearance in one of Rob Zombie's movies. But either way, he's he's always a welcome insight, Tracy Walter. Yeah, there's like I loved the guy, especially as a kid. He was just one of those guys that were like I guess if you look at his IMDb, you could probably see it. But like he was just in a run of films for so long. Like I remember like me and my dad being avid film goers, like. We we it felt like we would see him in like a movie like two to three to four times a year. He just was always popping up in that kind of early to mid eighties era, and it just like the second I don't care what movie he was in, what type of character he was playing, the second he was on screen, it's weird. He was just instantly recognizable. Yeah, I can't, I can't, if there if there's one thing you could say about movies nowadays is that yeah I miss that having those those recognizable character actors who just show up and anything and everything. I think that's something that's kind of missing from movies made nowadays because nowadays they rely on familiar faces, but they're all like A-listers. Right. You really don't see much from like, you know, the the people who might be considered B-listers or C-listers yet. They're a recognizable face nonetheless. Well, it's it's kind of funny too, because I think this would probably be hard for people to fathom now, but me being somebody a little bit older and was seeing the movies he was popping up in very early on, I would say, like, the first probably 10 years of Steve Buscemi's career was very Tracy Walter-esque. Like, really? He, yeah, he had done, like, some large roles in very, like, unknown scene, like, movies early on, like, parting glances and stuff that were kind of, like, New York things. But, like, if you look at his, his, his filmography, I want to say, even after he'd done Reservoir Dogs, and Reservoir Dogs was kind of his big breakout role, but before mm-hmm. that, like, he did a lot of, like, Steve Buscemi popped up in a lot of movies in one, two, three-line roles, just in and out, quick things. And it was it was kind of cool, because I remember another thing, um, going to the movies with my dad and stuff, like, you would always see, like, Steve Buscemi, especially after Reservoir Dogs, was in, like, four or five films a year. And, like, sometimes he would be kind of be, like, the coolest thing about the movie, even though he was, like, barely in it, um... There's one movie, I can't remember, it's from a famous director, it might have even been Robert Altman, I can't remember, I want to say it's Kansas City, and I think Jennifer Jason Leigh is in it too, and Buscemi has a kind of small supporting role, and it's just totally, oh, another one is um, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, he kind of plays like the hitman, oh, it's just like, man, 
Killer, killer. And don't get me wrong, like, I love Steve Buscemi, and I'm glad he got to break out, and, like, he did his starring role in his directorial de- debut, uh, Trees Lounge, which is awesome as well, but, like, those those earlier films where you just get a tiny bit of Buscemi, like, yeah, it's it, it, <laughs> it's the best in small doses. See, Al, it's, it's funny here in this scene, because if you look in the background, you notice, like, a lot of guns and boxes, and you wonder, like, is that going to play a factor in the movie when it doesn't? And if there's one problem I will say that Repo Man has is that, yeah, it sometimes introduces a subplot, which you think is going to have some sort of payoff, but it doesn't. Because right. I know that originally, because they, they had considered multiple endings for this movie, but one of them was Otto takes the Malibu to Central America and uses it uh, in, in, the, in the effort to fight against, the, to help the, what am I trying to say, to help the, rev, the revolutionaries, because, you know, there, there's a bomb in the back. Right, and the other ending was is that you know they open the trunk and then LA is destroyed because it goes off. Yeah, and and like I know exactly what you're talking about from where the movie was originally headed with the original endings and like you know the finished product that we have right here. I mm-hmm. think I think the biggest third line thing that's like still there and still kind of half ass pay it off. Is uh like the storyline of uh like the repo men office like where Otto and Bud works there like there's like kind of like the pretty uh uh receptionist there uh, Marlena and yeah. she she she's she's kind of there almost like it's never really clear but she's do- she's clearly doing double double duty because like we show we see her dress almost like a revolutionary and she's yeah. hanging out with the Rodriguez brothers and like you said like. There's definitely like that, I guess, hint of an underground resistance to going on, but it's kind of hard to really define it because even the authorities who are constantly after the the Malibu that has the dead aliens in the trunk and this weird organization that his new girlfriend works for, like it's all very ill-defined. It, like it's never really crystallized. It is. But in a weird way, like I'd almost think like as much as that would be a criticism for most films, like. It's kind of like a blurry, fuzzy area in this, but it doesn't really like kill or hurt the movie that much because there's so much other stuff going on. Not really, no. And plus, the the ending we ended up with, I think, is actually a a great ending because it pays off Miller's character. Because for the longest, the longest, uh, sorry, froze up there. For the no, longest bro. while, we you know we think that Miller he's just the weird guy at the at the junkyard. But it turns out, no, the weird guy is actually the normal one, a.k.a. the one capable of driving the Malibu and, you know, send it off flying. So I, I'm glad that they went they went with that approach for the ending and, you know, paid off his character that way rather than just have him be the quirky side character. Yeah, for sure. And it, it, it's kind of funny. And I mean, again, like, it, it's it's hard for me to put over a movie that's one of my favorite movies already. But when I was when I was watching this uh, this movie the other night, um, and when that ending came, when you know Miller takes the car and all that, like I, like it's it's kind of weird because like like as nebulous as the plot kind of is as you're going through the movie and like the whole time you're watching it, especially I'd say the first time you ever watch this movie, you don't know exactly where it's going. But it's like it's such a great like uplifting ending because you have like all these people that are like battling for this car. I mean, the the car, I guess, in a traditional way is pretty much like a MacGuffin in itself. But like everybody's after this car, the authorities, you know, the underground revolutionaries, everybody wants it for like their own purpose. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. supposedly these these dead aliens, whatever. 
<laughs> whatever the mystery is in the trunk. Um, as much as they do state it, like they get, you see that one blurry photo, supposedly what's in the trunk. Like even then, like I almost kind of don't buy it fully. But yeah, then, I mean, th- those are just really condoms filled with water and dressed with grass skirts. Exactly. <laughs> so, 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 like you don't even know if like that explanation is kind of just like a bullshit explanation that's being passed off on auto. You know what I mean? Like it, it really could just be the bomb. It could be anything else. But it's like that ending where Miller kind of comes in. And you have, like, this this movie where all these different sides and factions, and even just the repo men themselves, because they want the bounty on the car. Um, yeah. You know, most cars, they get, like, a $5,000 bounty or whatever, and this one's 20000 You know, nobody knows why, but it's kind of the thing of, like, you know, I guess it's a statement of capitalism. Like, nobody's asking questions. They just want the money. But, yeah, mm-hmm. when Miller kind of comes in there and takes the car, it's, it, it's you know, and Otto joins in with them. You know, it's kind of great that these two characters that I would say probably had the least, you know, amount of purpose and direction within the film, like this power that everybody wants and everybody's so thirsty over, like these guys end up with it and just ended up, you know, like, like, like basically taking it for a joy, but just, just, you know, like, it's cool that like, you know, this power is not going to be used for evil. It's not going to be, you know, cashed in on whatever. It's just these two guys who really don't have, uh, you know, because even Otto, as much as he likes making the money and he starts wearing a suit and stuff, even by the end, he's burnt out on it. He doesn't care anymore about money and material things. So it's great just to see these two guys. Like, I guess it's really just, you know, a random instance of of chance and, you know, just weird fate coming in and taking this car away. It is. It is. Although it does make me wonder because, you know, uh, Alex Cox had had made plans for doing a sequel to Repo Man during the 90s, which it didn't happen because I think everybody was was game for it, I think, except for Emilio Estevez. But Mm -hmm. this is coming from a guy who did a lot of Mighty Duck sequels. So what does he know? But, yeah, it does make (laughs) me wonder, like, what direction would have the potential Repo Man sequel could have taken if if it actually happened, I per, personally I think you know Alex Cox shouldn't have done a sequel to Repo Man because it's such a great little movie of its own to try and to, to try to replicate that that quirky that quirkiness of Repo Man. I don't yeah. think it would have worked. Even though yeah, I know they eventually they took the potent, the planned sequel of Repo Man and they made it into a graphic novel. Right. Yeah, I think it's one of those things too. Um, something that doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, you know, like especially in this day and age, there's a lot of long gestating sequels. Like it used to be, if you didn't make a sequel within three to five years, it's like what's the point of doing it? You know. And now we've had a lot of these um, sequels that pop up ten, fifteen, twenty years later, and people are always like, oh, yeah, like most part, the rap is like, yeah, it's it's good and it's. Um, you know, it, it it was it was a decent movie unto itself, but like people always kind of come up with that thing of like, oh, you know, you can't really recapture the feeling of the original. And I think Repo Man would have been a prime example of that in terms oh, of yeah. it, like even though you know it, they were trying to craft this kind of little world that they were at the same time, a lot of it was influenced by things that were like going on in the early '80s, and like you could have definitely probably readopted that 10 15 years later whenever they're going to end up making the sequel to be more a snapshot of that current time but you never mm-hmm. really could have recreated the feel of the original and i think probably a lot of people would have been disappointed by that you know what i mean oh yeah certainly certainly though though it is funny yeah and, and it's also like you have to consider that nowadays a lot a lot of the cast that that wasn't repo man has passed away but 
if for some reason a sequel were to happen, Alex Cox could just pull a David Lynch and have all the dead actors come back as plates of shrimp. Like they, <laughs> yes. like like what David Lynch did with David Bowie in, in the Twin Peaks revival. How he's just a he's a tea kettle. Because why not? Exactly. And I, I can see Alex Cox coming up with some sort of creative invention like that. And um, yeah, like like I, it's kind of funny because as 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 much as. I would say this movie's kind of like 50-50 in terms of like, at least for me as a viewer, like I feel like the charisma and stuff that, that are very young and green. And and I, like I should say, I love Emilio Estevez. He was like actually my favorite actor when I was a kid. He did this film, uh, I'm pretty sure he directed to this film called Wisdom, which I absolutely loved when I was a kid. Did you ever see that one, William? Uh, I've never heard of it. Yeah, it kind of sucks because it never got like a legit dvd release but it, i want to say it came out around like 86 87 ish it was around the time where he was engaged to uh, demi moore so it's basically okay. this story where emilio estevez plays this young guy who's probably in like his mid-20s and when he was young he got drunk with some friends and took a car for a joyride and crashed it so he like yeah. he went down hard for like a couple years for you know basically felony grand theft and all that so like here he is he's still very young he's still living with his parents who i think are if i'm remembering correctly are played by uh veronica cartwright and um is it maybe and tom scared i'm pretty sure that's his parents which is weird because they were an alien so maybe i'm mixing that part up but i'm pretty sure his parents so basically it's about him trying to get a job and nobody wants to hire him because he's a felon and basically right. what happens is he he just says screw it I'm going to rob a bank and and he's fully intending to rob a bank but while he's there the, and I should say too this 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 happened around the time in real life that uh, a lot of farmers were facing facing financial crisis in the US and losing their farms so he mm-hmm. basically he burns up and obviously this is a product of his time but this is when bank rate records were kept on paper so he burns up the mortgages of like all the houses and farms and shit so like a lot of people that were going to, like, lose their land and stuff, uh, you know, they end up not because he just destroyed all the records. So he kind of, like, goes on a mission and, like, he becomes, like, a modern-day folk hero uh, through the news. Uh, Almost like a Natural Born Killers type movie, but more on a positive spin where he just goes around to banks doing this over and over. And, uh, yeah, like, I don't want to ruin the ending. It kind of has somewhat of a controversial ending. But anyway, like, yeah, it's just, like, I just loved this movie, you know, as as a kid. So, like, I was all about Emilio Estevez, and, um, you know, going through all his filmography from that time, I want to say I I think I've seen all his films, to be honest with you. Um, Good. This movie, this movie, he's very green, but I like it. He also did a movie called Nightmares, which I'll talk about in a minute, Uh, but I like green Emilio. Green, green, young Emilio Estevez is not necessarily bad Emilio Estevez, I'll say that. Okay. Uh, my my favorite type of Emilio Estevez is Maximum Overdrive Emilio Estevez. <laughs> yeah, he's great in that. Which uh, I, I I here's a fan theory. Do you think that Repo Man and Maximum Overdrive are set in the same universe? Because think about it. In Maximum Overdrive, you see the green fog in the sky because of the so-called comet. How we know it's not really because of the Malibu and the radiation emanating from it from Miller flying around Earth. <laughs> If you you could you could do a double 
you could do a double tie-in too, and with with Maximum Overdrive, you could also tie Wisdom in because it's also another movie where Emilio's getting the short shaft because he's a felon or whatever. So you you yeah, could tie in two Emilio universes into Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> yeah, forget the shared cinematic universe. I want the shared Emilio universe. I agree. I just he, he, yeah, he got a bad deal. Um, I, I talked about this, I think, on an episode of Exploited Cinema, so I'll just go through it real quick. He made a deal with, uh, well, it's basically with Disney, but it's Touchstone, Disney, whatever, yeah. subsidiaries. He did a deal where he would write and direct a movie called The War at Home, which is very good uh, from the mid to late 90s. Um, where it, 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 It's basically almost like a Born on the Fourth of July. I want to say it's, it's, it's based on a book. Uh, but it's about a, it's about a young guy coming home from Vietnam and having problems and nobody understanding. And I want to say Martin Sheen, uh, definitely Martin Sheen, but Martin Sheen and I want to say Kathy Bates plays his mom. It's just a great family drama where he plays this guy. So basically, he he made a deal with Disney where they would fund his movie that he wanted to you know star in and direct, and he would do the Mighty Ducks, and then like. Basically, you know, he got to make the movie, which is good. You could even it's even been re released twice on Blu-ray, believe it or not. But um, it just got dumped the video. They're like, okay, we we got your your Mighty Ducks movies, Emilio. So that's why he made like all the Mighty Ducks movies. And then yeah. he he uh, then there's actually a great uh, interview with Charlie Sheen from back in the day, the late '90s, where he he recants the whole story and slams Disney and talks about how they got their ducks worth. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but yeah like like Emilio is great but um there's definitely a switch I would say you know I would say the 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 mid 80s later and like the early to mid 80s like there's definitely two Emilios there's there's a more polished I mean he's great both ways don't get me wrong but there's like a more polished kind of studio friendly film acting Emilio and then there's kind of what he's doing in Repo Man where he just he looks like he's he's acting on just raw instinct and you know he almost seems like one of those actors who like even though i think he knows the script in and out he feels like he doesn't and he's like kind of you know reacting to everything in a very uh, like urgent and immediate way and I, I like it a lot i think he's very actually you know i think being a part of the whole sheen family and charlie and martin everything i think kind of diluted people um you know enjoying how good he was yeah Love that scene too, where Cy Richardson shoots blanks into the house because somebody, Emilio uh, was trying to repo the the Mustang out front, and somebody comes out and starts shooting at him, and Cy just starts <laughs> unloading gunfire, and we turn, we find out later is blanks. I always thought that was a a cool little twist to the story there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great scene, but but then again, to to pick a favorite scene for Repo Man is kind of hard because I, I love the whole movie. I mean, like I said earlier, I. I, I think the scene with Miller and Otto, that's if I had to pick one, it's probably my favorite scene. But really, it's just one of those movies from, from beginning to end where you kind of like every scene, every every moment that happens because it's, it's so damn memorable. It is. And, and there's like a feeling just like with what's going on right now, like where they almost run the scientist guy over in the phone booth. There's like a there's like a sense of this movie the way it involves and I think a lot of that has to be the kind of like newness of of Alex Cox as a director at the time but I think this is kind of a good thing you see with young directors is like 
they quite don't know how to thematically like you know, like place everything in the right place in the right time. So you kind of get like a, a more fun roller coaster ride, like where each scene is kind of directed and feels, you know, because there's like there's like some scenes that are very kind of slow and character and dialogue driven, and then there's some scenes mm-hmm. in this movie that are like very visually oriented. And I like how young directors aren't afraid to mix that up, and like sometimes. You know, even some of my favorite directors, by the time they get to their sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth film, like they fully develop their style, and you kind of get the same distinct style through the, the the full movie. Where it's like this movie feels so epic because there's so many scenes and pieces of subject matter that feel like completely like irrelevant, but at the same time, they they all tell together, you know, tie together to tell the story. Oh, hey, we're we're on my uh, second favorite scene from from this movie, the John <laughs> the John Wayne scene, and yeah. by the way. Since they're singing Jingle Bells, does this mean Repo Man is technically a Christmas movie? It could be because we kind of glossed over it, but earlier there was a scene where he was in the the uh, car with Cy Richardson, and uh, they found wrapped gifts in the back. So it very well could be this. This we we could uh, with these two little nuggets here, we could tie this into the Facebook uproar that's been going on for years about whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. We'll just throw that out the. Uh, window and uh you know throw repo man into the conversation see if i ever find myself in a group conversation and don't don't know what to say i'm just gonna i'm just gonna randomly say john way was a fag exactly (laughs) and i think the thing that's so so amazing about this scene and memorable about this scene is when uh miller says to the group uh john way which which is bizarre too that they're like out there like cutting his hair or whatever and he's like so greasy and dirty but when he says John Wayne was a fact, everybody gets so immediately mad <laughs> that they want to beat him up. <laughs> and they, well, well, I mean, back then, you know, John Wayne was considered a man's man. Though nowadays, people kind of see him as just a a dumb yeah. cowboy. Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. You know, in like his earlier scene that we were talking about where he talks about the plate of shrimp, like sometimes you're just thinking about a plate of shrimp and then somebody says plate of shrimp. It's like. <laughs> It's 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 funny because like yeah here he is cutting his hair but like it's weird because like at the same time it's like you don't think much of Miller as the movie's going along but then when you know the outcome of this movie and you subsequently rewatch it you you realize that you know he 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 goes from kind of like I would say being like just a side character with a weird philosophy to. He, like I almost kind of think he is the philosophy of this of this film, you know what I mean? Kind of embodied. He is. Although it is funny to to go back to that John Wayne scene one more time. Apparently, it is based off a supposed true story, according to Alex Cox, at least. Yeah, and uh, is it based on what Miller was saying that he that there was two way mirrors installed in John Wayne's house, and he would enjoy watching people have sex or whatever? No, well, because on one special features is like a group conversation between Alex Cox and two of the producers, and when this scene is brought up, Alex Cox is like, "Yeah, I met this guy one time who told who told me this story about how one time he was installing mirrors in John Wayne's car, and John Wayne came out wearing a dress and was making forty remarks at the uh, uh, at the people, the Mexican landscapers." That would be very interesting if it turned out to be true. You, ne- you never know, but uh, there, there's the circle jerks in, in the bar yeah. dressed up as lamos, yeah. and it's very funny. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite songs from the soundtrack, too. Like, 
it's kind of intentionally bad, but like when you hear it, it enough, it it does catch your ear. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is surprisingly catchy. I always find myself saying the do we do do wop what say what yeah yeah. I was saying that earlier today. <laughs> I guess we should say I I got to reveal too. I can't believe I never picked up on this or never at least read it, but um, my mind was blown here where um you have the three punks uh. Otto's old friends, and you have the one big guy with the mohawk, Archie. And uh, I never knew that was the acclaimed character actor, Miguel Sandoval, who who's who makes sense. He's in a bunch of other Alex Koss uh, projects, but uh, right. I, I've always known him as an older, kind of heavier set man. Um, and well, o- what what else has he done besides Reaper <sighs> Man and some of Alex Cox's other films? He's, he's done a lot of shit. Let me hit the IMDb real quick, but like he always plays like a, a, a what do you call it like a like a government official or like or like a Hispanic drug lord. It, it, it feels like, and I want to say too, I could be mistaken, but I want to say too because I always knew him as Miguel Sandoval. I think the opening credits had listed as uh, Michael Sandoval, so like maybe that's like which people don't know Miguel and, and, and like Michael is kind of like the whatever you say. Uh, uh, American equivalent of Miguel, but yeah. So his his things that he's known for, and a lot of these are are smaller roles. But he's played roles in things like Clear and Present Danger, Jurassic Park, Get Shorty. I'm pretty sure he. Who, who, what does it say he he's in in Jurassic Park? Who who's it? What does it say he plays? He, he's probably like one of the diggers at the beginning where the lawyer shows up. Yeah, it's like Rasta Rasta Agno. I'm not really sure even how to pronounce that, but like he and he does tons and tons of TV too. But like, any, just anybody Google the name Miguel Sandoval, and when you see him now, it's always a, a recent picture. But he looks like a tall like kind of thin guy in this movie and he always to me he always looked like a uh kind of you know like kind of short heavy he- heavier guy you know he like he must have really like done this movie like right before he started putting weight on and stuff but yeah he he has a very like it's hard to describe unless you you know the guy's work but he has a very regal kind of way of like he always plays a character with a lot of gravitas you know what i mean and yeah. it's and it's funny because if you watch the deleted scenes of repo man uh, it kind of shows like the alternate storyline, which was a little bit different. Where it was actually Archie that was having like there's a pretty graphic oral sex scene between Archie and Debbie. Yeah, where where Otto walks in and they replace that with Dick Rude and her in, in bed. But like mm-hmm. you hear Miguel Sandoval's real voice in the in the uh, the deleted scenes, but for the movie some reason, and I don't know if it's him doing the voice or somebody else, but they gave him this cartooning <laughs> voice just like this. I think he said in, in one of the extras that it was him who decided to give the character a cartoony voice. Mm-hmm. Like, here, right now, he's like, oh, Dookie Wookie hurt his little hand. Yeah. And, like, I could kind of see his face, like, as I know him as an older man in this character, but still, it's, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. Actually, like, if you, actually, if you saw them side to side. Because you brought up the... Uh, the deleted scenes of Repo Man, that that extra on on the Blu-ray and DVD, that is one of the most funniest extras that I've ever seen. Because it's what makes it unique is it's not just Alex Cox talking about oh this is a scene we shot and cut out. No, it's him talking about the scenes, but he also has with him the the real inventor of the neutron bomb. 
Right, right. That is beyond bizarre. And I want to say and, those extras have been around for quite a while because I want to say they were all on the previous releases that I had. But yeah. Yeah, they were. And yeah, it's funny because, like, yeah, he, he mentions it on the IO Contest. It's like, yeah, one day I get a letter from this guy. And he says he, he's the creator of the Neutron Bomb and that Repo Man is one of his favorite movies, the other being Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's. It's, which in a weird way, like those two films, like I feel like they have the same kind of like, you know, mocking satire spirit. I love too that the the repo guys like they put on sheriff hats and like they think it's gonna fool people into thinking that they're cops. <laughs> <laughs> there there is a great bit that we kind of skip past where, um, you know, Otto got beat up by actually a ska band because he was trying to repossess one of the gra- guy's uh, grandmother's car. And they all just yeah. beat him and stuff. They caught him and beat him because the car was up on blocks. And then, like, the repo men were asking him, like, hey, who beat you up? We got to know. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. And, like, they, they pretty much turn on Otto saying, like, we don't care that you got beat up, but you're one of us. So, you know, we got to go get revenge. So, he, you know, he asked him, who did this to you? And he gave him the name of the nerdy guy who uh, managed the grocery store early on. So it was a great yeah. comical scene. But I got to say, um, this was a great scene where the repo guys uh, kind of get into a, uh, you know, they were chasing the car, but like then they get into like a kind of road rage incident here with the Rodriguez brothers. Mm-hmm. And and again, like I've seen this movie a million times and I've never noticed it. This, this bridge that they go under, I'm 99% sure that this is the same area from it the... Terminator. Yeah, it's the same bridge that they use the Terminator because I I can see at at the end that's the wall that the the Terminator crashes into uh, when he's chasing Kyle and Sarah. Yeah, I was surprised to learn like how many times how much this tunnel has been used in various movies because it's also popped up in Cobra and the Hidden and a bunch of other movies. Yeah, it it must be an area of town because because there's a great runway of space there where you you know you could you could shoot shit and you know crash cars and whatever. Uh, it must be a place where it's like overnight you can just block off, you know, and there's not much traffic that needs to go through there. But it's it's very cinematic and uh, it looks great on camera. It does. But I was thinking, um, man, what a crew here, these guys. The the only guy that I'm really not familiar with is the one kind of older white guy in the Repo Men crew. Yeah, I. he's probably been in Earth stuff, but I, I couldn't name it. He's so distinctive, though, like like during he the is. parts. And I like how they always had this kind of security guard guy at the at the uh, office, and like he he's like a real prick and always gets into fights with people. But he's always like sitting there crocheting or doing other things. <laughs> you know, he, he he's a tough guy, but he has a soft heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny too because. Um, you know, like, because this is a movie that built its reputation over time, but it's kind of interesting because Harry Dean Stanton was kind of one of those guys that just kind of always looked old, for lack of a better term. Yeah, and, he always, yeah, he always did look old. Yeah, uh, like like an alien. He he yeah. he looks the same uh, as he did in Alien as he did in Repo Man. Yep, and it's it's kind of funny because I mean, he, like, I think maybe Alien might have, without, like, looking at his whole IMDb, but he was somebody who really didn't, like, hit it big till he was older, or at least active for a while, because, yeah, I remember, like, after Alien, I could be wrong which came first, but I'm pretty sure right before this, he was in a, he was in a movie that was pretty critically acclaimed called Paris, Texas, and, uh, 
played a guy that was yeah. like really sad out in the desert. And he got a lot of critical acclaim. I remember, I remember that was actually one of the first movies we ever rented on VHS was Paris, Texas. Like literally, might even been the, like the first trip to the video store. My dad wanted to see it. I think the earliest movie that I've seen Harry Dean Stanton in is Cool Hand Luke. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He put. He, it's like the one time you're like, oh, he's younger, but he's he's still Harry Dean Stanton. Clearly, same. Yeah, yeah. He he he's a great guy. Rest in peace, Harry Dean. Yeah, yeah, he is. Always. Oh, think... Did you know? Did you know they conserved Mick Jagger for, uh, but uh, for Harry Dean's character? I actually I, I hadn't heard of that, but that makes total sense. Actually, yeah, it was like they they were going to get, they showed the script to Harry Dean's agent, and he was like, no, 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 Harry, Harry Dean will take this role. You need to get somebody like. Like Mick Jagger for this role, and Alex Cox was like, uh, "No, we we want someone like Harry Dean because his character is a grumpy old man. Harry Dean is a grumpy old man." <laughs> he is. I, I like like that little bit where you know they get in the fight over the winos, and Harry Dean's going on the rant about how much do they owe? So if we could just make them pay, and you know, Otto's kind of had enough of this life at this point, and he's just like, "They're bums. They don't have any money," you know. And they kind of reach a standstill, and he he rushes out. There's that last little shot right before it cut where Harry Dean gets sad. I thought that was a great moment. Yeah. Oh, I I never really picked up on that until until you mentioned it. Yeah. It's just like I don't know. Like again, with, with as much as this movie doesn't make it an overly sappy buddy relationship, because really half the movie I would say. Uh, Otto's out with Cy Richardson almost as much as he is with Harry Dean. Um, yeah, it's kind of the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie where he's like with Harry Dean. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, and then there's like that little like we were talking about with the world building. There's that little scene where Otto walked down Skid Row and like the guys in the hazmat suits were just collecting the dead, bo- you know, bums, winos, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I always thought this was a great shot here too, where he he. Otto sees the car and he chases it to the point where you know he starts getting sick, and like as soon as he goes and he vomits over the side of the bridge, then the car appears underneath. I just thought that was a great little shot right there, like some like something like that just helps uh, cinematic. I guess we should say too. I was like looking at the IMDb credits of this last night. And I was surprised to see Robbie uh, Moeller uh, shot this, who's like a really great cinematographer, and he also shot one of my other favorite films of the period and it kind of makes sense uh to live and die in la okay yeah i'm just wondering but where does repo man rank on your favorite movies list uh you know it's always hard to like list them in order order but i mean for me personally it's top 10 for sure okay it's, it's probably top 10 for me as well yeah people always ask me what's your favorite film of all time i'm just like yeah i'll, I'll get back to you on that <laughs> yeah but if I mean if I had to like pick ten movies, I'm pretty sure Repo Man would be one of them. For sure, and it's like I I would say like it's probably one of the the kind of like more looser films in my top ten. Like in terms of like my favorite movie of all time is like Taxi Driver, and then like A Clockwork Orange is very probably number two or three at the bottom. It's just like it's like a lot of films that I like that are kind of in my top whatever. They're kind of films that are very very like i mean alex cox as well with his directorial vision he knew very clearly what he was kind of going for but like a lot of those other films they feel they feel very tight when you watch them for the most part whereas like this this movie 
like and i i say it as as like a credit not a discredit but like this movie feels very loose and all over the place and like that's that's kind of like how i felt like a lot of times uh throughout the years watching it but it's like there's something about that like end scene and the way the movie ends and i know that's kind of like what this movie is famous for if you're for many years if you're ever to ask people like oh you ever see repo man and people would kind of barely have seen it or they saw it a long time ago they kind of yeah is that the movie where the car flies at the end that's kind of like all people remember about it but that ending like with the score and everything like like it kind of like i don't know like it's really at that point like the last 10 minutes of the movie to me all these different factions, all these different elements that have kind of been, you know, ping-ponging around this film, they kind of all get distilled down into, like, one, you know, like, basically everything comes together, and, like, the ending is, like, I think the ending makes the movie. Honestly, like, if if they would have gone with the revolutionary thing and all that kind of thing, like, I don't think that would have really played as well, because I, I think the ending that's actually in the movie speaks more to, like, who Otto is as a character, more than, like, if he actually found his purpose and did something big and grand with his life, you know what I mean? Yes. Yes, I do. I think it just blew my mind. I don't know how, but I think it just did. <laughs> Believe me, it feels like it's not all going to come together, but when this film ends, it all comes together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like when two hemispheres collide. Hemisphere. Hemisphere. You know, it's strange. I feel I feel funny. Yeah. And 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 the guy who plays the scientist who's driving the car around and now he's finally succumbing to the radiation. He does a great job too. Oh yeah, he he's a he's a great mad scientist character. It's like who you don't see much of, you know, in the early in the earlier scenes cuz you get a little, you get a little hint, but in, in that scene that we just witnessed, where he's just rambling on and on about the neutron bomb and getting a lobotomy, it's like, oh yeah, this this guy, he he's nuts. Yeah, completely. And, and there, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, there's just something about about Repo Man that's I think a strength of the film is it's very atmospheric, whether it be like the punk party in the beginning. Or, like, you know, the streets of L.A., like, when they're repossessing the cars, or, like, you know, like, even, like, this part here, how they're, like, in the middle of, like, you know, deserted industrial part of Los Angeles. It's a film that, like, it's very atmospheric, but it it, it creates many different atmospheres and many different kind of, like, social groups. I've been wondering, I've been, I've been holding it off, but I kind of want to bring it up. How, how would you say Repo Man compares to something like Return of the Living Dead in terms of the punk vibe and whatnot. Because when I look at Return of the Living Dead, it, I see it as like a, a punk take on an, on, EC, on EC Comics, like Tales from the Crypt. Whereas with Repo Man, I see it as like, it, it feels like, you know, some, some sort of, you know, weird off, offbeat thing that has punk elements to it. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead, another movie that I love. Uh, just just a a great movie that kind of blew my mind as a kid um what i would say with return of the living dead um like like i don't don't mean this as a slam on it and anybody you know i hope you don't take it this way but return of the living dead is more of a plastic punk film it's more of a dress-up punk film it's it's you know like you you could you could have said it a, a few years later in like like had it just been a bunch of hair metal kids as well you know what i mean um 
and it's 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 clearly one where like like Jewel Shepherd, for example, is like clearly wearing a mohawk wig, and same with like Linnea Quigley and like her stuff. But so it's just like this film is like more authentic. Like I would say, you know, and and, and yeah. like I'm I'm a huge fan of Dan O'Bannon. Don't get me wrong, I love the guy's work, but I mean, you know, he he, he was a guy I, I want to say in his upper thirties, possibly early forties when he made Return of the Living Dead. He's like kind of you know around that age. He wasn't. Like, I think he was a spiritual punk, but he wasn't, like, a punk punk. Whereas Alex Cox was a lot younger guy. He was tuned into the scene a lot more. And I think, like, Otto and his friends... Like, his friends are clearly stereotypes of punks, don't get me wrong. But, like, I think, I think you know, with, with, the, with the music that's in this movie and the way it's incorporated, it's kind of more in the background. Whereas, like... Return of the Living Dead is almost like a punk film in a way that, like, it was, like, an artistic and possibly commercial decision to steer at punk, whereas, like, this film, Repo Man, it's just, it's just made by a guy who was, like, tuned into the punk ethos at the time, and, you know, it was unavoidable. Yeah, with Return of the Living Dead, the punk was very much a sort of stylistic decision, because, you know, Dan O'Ban, you know, he said in various interviews, he wanted to distance his movie from the from Romero stuff as much as possible, so he's like, well, why don't I just model after uh, the punk scene? And I mean, he he did it like like he did an amazing job. Like don't get me wrong, like like the punk ethic is like you know the the kind of dressing and atmosphere is one of the reasons why I love Return of the Living Dead so much. But yeah, I've always felt like Pl- Repo well, Man was more Return- authentic. Well, plus uh, plus Return of the Living Dead has that you know nihilistic. Uh, fuck you society attitude which people tend to associate with uh, the punk scene exactly like like it kind of has that thing of like you know kind of like the no future you know motto is pretty much associated to it mm-hmm. and like also too like it definitely you know with the way the military just nukes uh, Louisville there <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's pretty much so we should say yeah this is this is the time when all the robberies from Otto's punk fan uh, friends uh kind of comes into play like they actually come in while him and harry dean are buying beers or whatever at the liquor store and you know a big shootout ensues pretty much everybody except Otto and his girlfriend debbie gets away which i gotta say like like one of the things and i'm sure it just probably got trimmed out actually i know it got trimmed out when you look at the deleted scenes but i always wanted more of uh of the the group of punk friends who kind of split off from Otto and went on this crime spree, because it's like you get bits of it, but it kind of like what do you think? I always thought Debbie was the real driving force behind this. Hold on, I'm trying to think of something something to say regarding Debbie. You are you are right in that regard that yeah, it's like it's there, but it isn't there. And I think it's the I think it's more the pair because of it that it's just sort of like it's a thing that pops up every now and then because if it become a defined subplot, then I think people have complained too much about there's too many subplots because you have because then people complain like oh well there's Otto and the Repo Agency there's Otto's relationship with Bud there's and and then now there's the the punks uh, D- Duke and all of them running around causing. Cause, you know, doing crimes and whatnot. I think, I think it's more the period yet that it's just sort of left, you know, snippets here and there instead of being fully fully explored. Yeah, and they they I think they kind of wrap it up too. I thought that was a great scene where where he talks to his friend who's dying, 
and he, he's trying to give him this like almost like this like Jimmy Cagney <laughs> spiel of like it wasn't my fault you know it was a, this and a, this he's blaming you know, society. society yeah to leave me in this life of crime and then Otto you know which is supposed to be a tender moment between him and his friend you know like he just kind of he's like oh just like drop the shit you're just a white suburban punk like me and like I gotta say like there there's very like no matter what kind of counterculture scene you're 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 around or been into or been nearby you know in your younger years there's always that element of it that people are like yeah man we should be doing this we should and it's just like there's always like that kind of like poser vibe like you know like not saying young people can't be you know aware of things in the world or whatnot but like a lot of that rebellion really is just kind of you know dressed up in kind of fake motivations and you know (laughs) A lot of philosophy is kind of just bullshit. That's a great scene, too, where uh, Marlene uh, smashes the one, I guess, you know, FBI guy in the face. And he's like, no, don't hit my face. My face. And then she's, <laughs> she smashes him. My face. <laughs> yeah. I always thought this was a great gag, too, where Otto shoots the uh, the coffee on the security guard guy. Oh, he throws the coffee. He does shoot it. Yeah, he fires it. <laughs> Which is great that they just had a full boiling pot of coffee at like nine o'clock at night going. Now you've mentioned it at various intervals in this commentary, but Alex Cox did do a movie many years later called Repo Chick. Now I'm a little confused. Is Repo Chick a a spiritual sequel to Repo Man? What is it? My understanding was, yeah, spiritual. um, Let me look up the wiki for it real quick. But yeah, it's like a spiritual uh sequel like the sequel that you never got or whatever and it, it does bring people back because miguel sandoval's in it um so yeah so here's the synopsis of repo chick in a parallel america a super confident bad girl disinherited by her filthy rich folks finds work in the repossession business however she is unaware that the ultimate repo target a missing train is being used by a terrorist determined to make their destructive mark. So, and, and keep in mind, this was all done on a budget of two hundred thousand dollars. So it's when you see, yeah, I, I heard, yeah, I, I know that was like super low budget. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, I don't want you know, it's like I don't want to slam the movie in case there's somebody out there that's a huge Alex Cox fan and they love it. Um, but it's just like, yeah, it just it it wasn't, you know. Okay. It wasn't really up to the, uh, and apparently the reason that it's it's a quote unquote non sequel is because Cox shares the right to Repo Man with Universal. So. Yeah, that's that's what I've read as well. Is that yeah, for the longest while, Universal more or less had the rights to Repo Man, and it's only like recently that Alex Cox finally got the rights back to Repo Man. It was kind of the same situation with James Cameron, the Terminator name, though you know. At least Alex Cox hasn't been like, oh, let's do uh, Repo Man, Woke Edition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, one thing about some of these things, you know, some of these works that we knew, you know, from decades past coming back to the original creators, the thing that I like about it is not even so much that anything would, like, continue or sequels be made. I just like when the original rights holders have it because usually they're, they're the ones that kind of, you know, want to cash in on it and like because i'm all for movies living on long after their original release you know so i like i would really hope that you know almost like a tommy wiseau type that alex cox would be very willing to uh to book midnight screenings of repo man you know wherever you know people are willing to do it or whatnot so especially in this day and age where 
you know, we we don't know what the future of uh, you know, theatrical whatever is going to exhibitions going to be, but uh, going back to the seventies when like movies like, you know, um, Eraserhead and whatever like were these midnight kind of darlings or whatever like. I would love if we could kind of get back to uh, movies living a long life as midnight movies again. Because, I mean, like, I'm a huge fan of The Room. Also a huge fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But there's there's a lot of movies that uh, can play at midnight. You know what I mean? Like, oh, like yeah. Pink Floyd's The Wall used to play quite a bit at midnight when I was a kid. And uh, I kind I, I, like, I kind of don't really get why that doesn't happen more and i would just always figure well a lot of like theater chains don't want to be open super late but like in recent years i've seen a lot of like mainstream theaters have like eleven fifteen at night showings of like you know three hour marvel movies or star wars movies so i kind of don't yeah. get why you can't do midnight shit more you know uh, i think it's just because audiences are like no i don't want to stay up late and see this old movie why do that when I can go see the late, the latest hot release at two in the morning <laughs> and fall asleep? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's 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 weird because uh, you know I I've met some people uh, during my time in college. I met some people like you won't watch a movie because it's black and white. I'm like yeah, I won't because it's it's old. Uh, I remember we in my World War II class uh, we had to watch uh, Mrs. Minerva mm-hmm. if. If I'm, getting the, if I'm getting the name right, yeah, it's like at one point the, the, this 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 girl was like, oh, yeah, I'm not like this movie. And I was like, why? Well, for one, it's black and white. And when I heard that, I was like, stop talking. Yeah. You you know, like it's kind of sad, but I remember, uh, like you know, in like the mid to late '90s, when people were like so ignorant that they were like, they're like, oh yeah, I would never watch Raging Bullets from the 1940s. It's like, well, what? <laughs> why do you why do you think that? <laughs> like, it was like, what was it like? Won all these Academy Awards in like 1981 or something? Like, why? It's like, oh, it's black and white. It's like, it's just weird that people think, you know. I mean, first of all, it's like, you know, like I, other than like sometimes I get sometimes older movies are harder to relate to because of you know the way dialogue and language has changed. Other than that, well, first of all, like I'm I'm in love with with black and white photography. I think it's beautiful. But um, yeah. Just in general, uh, like, like it's it's very interesting to see modern movies. And I know Raging Bull is a period piece, but even when you watch it, it, it clearly has, like, the evolved, you know, early 80s kind of film language and technique. I mean, it's it's a vis- it's one of the most visually striking movies of all time. I mean, I guess you could probably say the same, too, I, about Eraserhead. Eraserhead with its stark visuals. And, like, I've really enjoyed the, the very few times in modern, you know, I guess modern decades that people have just gone back to black and white for aesthetic decision. I, I was really in love with Darren Aronofsky's uh, first low budget film Pie, and uh, there was a couple just a few years ago. There was a movie uh, called Nebraska that I thought was really good, and I thought it was really enhanced. Just a little character piece movie, but it was really enhanced by it being black and white. Yeah, man, we are in the wrap up already. That's how that's how I, much this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I. Uh... Not not to get too praiseworthy with your channel, but yeah, one of the things I like about you is is how knowledgeable you are on movies, you know, because it, it really motivates me to like go and s- seek out wise movies that I've been meaning to watch, but for one reason or another, I just, I just haven't. So, 
Yeah, and and I gotta say, like the real the real power of movies, um, and and a lot of it is just you know the habit of of being a, a regular film goer since i was like you know literally in diapers or whatever but a lot of it really has to do with like i mean a lot of these movies i mean don't get me wrong i've i've seen i've seen like i'm not shitting you i've seen repo man probably over 30 times um and the, this time this past week you know i haven't watched it in a year or two because it's somebody who's just constantly you know watching new movies buying blu-rays of classic or new movies whatever it's like sometimes when you go back and like you re-watch something you re-experience or like like the movie is exactly the same every word of dialogue every shot every sound effect is the same but when you watch it years later you're a different person and it's like that's what i think is fascinating about going back to this old stuff even old stuff that you've seen dozens of times because you like you can get something new out of it because you're different than the last time you watched it, you know, especially if it's a film you haven't watched in years. Oh yeah, definitely. So yeah, so this is basically the big wrap up where basically all the sides, the repo men, the uh I don't know, was the government agency really ever that clearly defined? Like I could never tell if it was the FBI or who that was like after the car. It, yeah, it's just a government agency. I don't think you're supposed to think too much about who exactly it is. I mean, do you see Mulder and Scully running around? Yeah. It's clearly not the FBI. Yeah. I love the guys, too. I'm a big sucker, too, for guys in these, like, hazmat suits. Like, another one, another movie that was great was that was George Romero's version of The Crazies. Just all the guys running around. Like, there's something just scary and opposing about that. Yeah. Yeah, or, like, the, the scientists in E.T. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, it's it's like, you know, especially in something like E.T. or even like this, it's like, okay, people are in hazmat suits because they don't want to get near something that I've been touching or been near this for, for hours or days. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's like a weird kind of phobia with that. Yeah. And then I, th- I think this doesn't, you know, I think it was for time. Like, I can't remember, like, because I know in the deleted scenes, they show that this preacher guy was somebody that Otto's parents watched. And, uh... It's the same guy that that was on the TV earlier, but I, I can't remember if, if in the fi- the finished film if we actually saw him. I just remember seeing him when I was watching the deleted scenes the other day. Um. Okay. So you see him on the TV when Otto comes home, and you see him one more time in the hospital on on TV, and then you see okay. him again in the finale. Which actually interesting tidbit about the finale. Apparently, they tried to get muhammad ali for a cameo where he i don't know approaches the car and gets zapped but for one reason or another he, he didn't ex- accept the offer yeah <laughs> it was a pretty weird movie i could see why muhammad ali wouldn't want to uh and like i really don't know like like uh i've listened to the commentary track and i can't remember if galax cox divulged it but this has to this glowing car especially these shots here i really like it like, I know there's a few shots earlier where it's driving around where it's more of an animated effect, but this kind of, like, whatever they painted it in, this green reflective paint and the lights they shone on it, this is a beautiful special effect, I think. Yeah, it is. It, it really makes the car stand out. Yeah, like, I mean, and I kind of feel like we lose that in modern movies where they're like, oh, here's this CGI box with a CGI glowing light coming out of it. It's powerful where it's like when you're looking at something here where it's like you don't quite know what you're looking at like how they did it or what it is but it's still a real thing (laughs) yeah exactly and i thought it was strange too it it seems like 
if I if I remember, I'm watching this on a little seven inch monitor here, but I'm pretty sure the New Mexico license plate is suddenly backwards in this scene. Like they took it off and like like not just like it's like mirror reverse, but it's like they took it off and like put it back on backwards. Okay, well the car's ascending. Yeah, it is. It is on backwards. Yeah, it's oh, really weird. I did not know. I did not notice this thing again. I was watching. You know, I was used to watching this movie on VHS. So yeah, yeah, and I love this. And uh, you know, I always always wondered too if this if this ending was at all influenced by the film Christmas Evil. Yeah, because isn't it like a uh, guy dressed up as Santa? He's yeah. on the run from people, and then the car takes off. Yeah, like like he's know. in a he's in a van, and it's like it's it's pretty much like he he's trying to be like a modern day Santa, but you know he he's he's killed some people and some things have gone wrong, so he's got a lynch mob after him, and and it's yeah. one of those movies where people try to say, oh, it's up for debate because you know you hear the crash or whatever like when he crashes over the side of the bridge but the movie clearly shows that he flies away so people are like oh that was just in his mind but he really crashed or whatever but either way like it's the only thing and i and i I just became a fan of that movie maybe about four or five years ago so i mean for the longest time i never thought of that but on this rewatch i kind of thought of that so well i i do know because we are at the end credits I, i do want to bring this up quickly but uh uh, Repo Man does take some influence from a noir film called Kiss Me Deadly. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I'm I'm familiar with the film, but like I can't remember if I've ever watched it all the way through. Yeah, it's um, it's one, it's one I've seen bits and pieces of. But the key, the key scene is that at the end, there's like this this box that they've been looking for, and at one point, one of the characters opens it, and it's this bright light shining, and it sets the person on fire, very much like how in Repo Man. When anybody opens the trunk, they get vaporized. Exactly. And I, and I kind of always wondered, too, because uh, I, I think Kiss Me Deadly was, was what they would always list as the uh, inspiration for the glowing briefcase in Pulp Fiction. But then again, like, knowing Tarantino, I almost wondered, too, because he also does a lot of trunk shots for some reason. I always, I always wondered, too, if he, maybe he was also influenced by Repo Man, but who knows? We got to mention because we're talking about the iconic credits, kind of how just they were just red generic block in the beginning, and now like this always stuck out in my mind too. Like the end credits, they actually scroll downwards. Yeah, that's that's very unique. I I can't think of too many era movies that do that where the credits are like played inverse style. The only one I can think of is Carnosaur because I think the credits of those are actually inverse as well. Really. I thought I thought maybe the credits they're like more done in a hand drawn style, but I'm pretty sure the credits the seven are like that too. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then like also too like uh, like you'll see like a lot of um, like I thought this was weird too, and uh, you probably read this too, William, but um, that Dick Rude who played like the like Otto's buddy, his punk, was yeah. somehow the. Uh, I don't know what you say, the consultant. He's listed in the credits here, too, besides his acting credit. Like, supposedly yeah. supposedly he consulted with Alice Cox for making the TV version, but I really never understood why. Like, <laughs> I think I think it's because uh, Dick Rude had developed a really good friendship with Alex Cox, because you have to remember, he was originally supposed to play Otto, but then they decided to go with Emilio Estevez, and in turn, they, they cast Rude as his as his best friend. So I kind of figure it's like, you know, Cox just doing him a favor. Like, Hey, I know, 
I know you get to play auto, but you, did, you get a supporting role. But I'll tell you what, you know, I'll put together TV version. I'll, I'll let you lend a helping hand. Yeah. And also, too, uh, I, I just noticed this uh, this last time watching it, but the, one of the grips was listed as Rowdy Harrington, who actually would go on to be a director. Who Unfortunately, he's most known for uh, directing the Patrick Swayze classic Roadhouse. But, Roadhouse is an amazing movie. Yeah. So is oh holy holy shit yeah. i never picked up on that yeah that could be the same rowdy harrington holy i was thinking it's mind. gotta be because how many guys are named rowdy but he also uh, like right before roadhouse he did a movie with james spader called jack's back which is like a, a movie i love but but it kind of sucks though because roadhouse was a hit so he went on to do some like bigger films like he did uh the film gladiator not the russell crowe one but the boxing movie with um uh, cuba gooding jr and then he also yeah. did Striking Distance with Bruce Willis. So I just thought it was that funny that, like, when you watch this movie, like, one of the just random crew members was a guy who was, like, actually directing big movies five, six years after this. Hey, everybody starts somewhere. Clearly. <laughs> Clearly. So, yeah. And also, too, uh, I wanted to throw out a recommendation if you're a fan of Repo Man, because I always feel like these movies are somehow linked but uh, I brought up the the film Nightmares, and it's been released a couple times on DVD, a couple times on Blu-ray, I think, or maybe just once on Blu-ray. But there is a it's an anthology film, a horror film, and it came out I want to say a year before this, and it was also a Universal picture. And basically, okay. Nightmares is an anthology horror movie. It was meant to be a television movie, but it got it got uh for whatever reason like they kind of like went back in and reshot some stuff or they tried to spice it up and like they made it a theatrical release so i was like very aware of uh nightmares as a kid on video and uh the reason i bring it up is um i'm blanking on the name of the segment uh uh, it's called the king or the bishop or something never mind but anyway like basically in that story we get a young emilio estevez uh he has a young sidekick boy that's always with him and it's from the days of when arcades were super hot and he plays a young punk with a blonde hair it's uh it's 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 not quite uh it is spiky but it's not quite Otto's hair it's a little bit longer and he's yeah. constantly has a walkman and he and he's putting on like um uh different songs like i think he if i'm not mistaken he might even put on let's have a war but there's like a couple songs that he listens to and I just thought it was interesting that, like, Emilio did another kind of punk role. And, like, without going too much into spoilers, but, it, like, the video game that he's playing and he's obsessed with beating is alive. And uh, he breaks into, actually, like, late at night, in the middle of the night, he breaks into the arcade to try to beat it and something supernatural happens. But, yeah, like, I always thought that was a nice, weird, uh, like, little, especially because he probably filmed them almost back-to-back Uh like I don't know the exact order, but yeah, he was pretty much in the Outsiders, Nightmares, and then Repo Man, like all around the same time. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll have to check it out. I just remembered the segment is called the Bishop of Battle. I think that's the name of the arcade game as well. But it's it's definitely fun. Uh, there's some there's some uh, there's a lot of scenes of him. Um, you know, getting in, like, like he lives, like, it's almost like Repo Man, like, he lives in the sprawl of L.A., uh, except he lives in an apartment with his parents, and, and, like, his mom and dad, you know, he's, like, all Mr. Punk Rock and stuff, kind of, and, like, he, he kind of has those rebellious scenes where, like, all he wants to do is run away from home and play video games and stuff, and there's a cool fight where he gets in trouble, and he has to, he's the uh, you know, sneak out the apartment building and scale down the side of the apartment building 
to uh, go out to the arcade. But yeah, it's it's just a nice little like almost weird, you know, because it is Amelia West. It's like a weird side thing. It reminds you a lot of Repo Man when you watch it. Cool, cool. So, do you have any uh, parting uh, bits of trivia or just any thoughts of Repo Man now that it has concluded? Not really, because we pretty much we've pretty much expulged on everything I've that I think I could say about Repo Man uh, over the the uh, duration of the movie itself. Uh, all I have to say is that it, it still remains a great movie and, and one of my favorites. Absolutely, it's very powerful, and I want to thank you because you know, uh, we 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 kind of met very much on a whim, and you, I, I think it was almost jokingly, <laughs> you said you said can I can I be on an episode of your podcast, and I said sure, and you you kind of seemed shocked, but <laughs> uh, I I think I think so because you know at the time I was probably thinking like oh I need to find some people to collaborate with because. Um, because you know, at at the time, I had just put into a a show I had been doing called Will and Matt's Excellent Podcast. Uh, the the reasons of which I, I won't go into, just right. because it involves a lot of personal stuff. But yeah, it was like at the time I was thinking, yeah, I need to find some people to collaborate with because I I have another collaboration set set up with with another podcasting channel uh, whose name I won't say because we haven't done it yet. We're not doing it till March. But uh, yeah, I was thinking like, well, I, you know, I've I've seen you on. Re- I've I've heard you on Revival House a lot, so it's like, yeah. oh, why why don't I reach out to you and be like, hey, you want you want you want to do something sometime? And when he said yeah, I was like, oh okay, yeah, let's uh now let's choose a movie, all right? I'll send you a list, all right? And he's like, oh yeah, let's do Repo Man. I'm like, fuck yeah, let's do Repo Man. Yeah, like I think the list you sent me, uh, I think they were all movies that I wouldn't mind doing at all. But then Repo Man stuck out to me, and I want to I want to thank you for kind of you know, kind of, uh, uh, helping me do this because, uh, to be honest with you, just like, like the, when you have a podcast like this and you're covering films, like, yeah, there is like that, you know, that dream list of films you want to, like your favorite films or films you want to do. But then also too, a big part of it is, is finding somebody to do the episode with. And for some reason, like, I'm almost kind of surprised we didn't do this very on in the podcast, but we didn't, but repo man, uh, and I was like, great. It was just a great opportunity for me to finally talk about one of my favorite movies. And like more than anything, the best part about it was like, I was like kind of bummed the last week, like post holidays, whatever, everything going on in the world. And, you know, work was kind of like stressing me out, whatever. And to kind of rewatch this movie at this time, um, which I probably wouldn't have just plucked this movie off the shelf right now because I, I got so much shit i got piles and piles of movies that i've acquired lately and i want to get through so to go back and like like rewatch this and be so into it and like remember like not only why like not only that i was into it when i was younger but why i was into it it was so much fun it's put me in it put me in such a better mood in all honesty like it kind of brightened me up so yeah it was it was, it was awesome and, and it was you that you know gave me the opportunity to do that so i appreciate it so much for coming on no 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 problem man i i had blast do, doing this commentary and talking about the last of coincidence exactly with the fellow repo man fan and it is also interesting yeah hear, hearing your like your nostalgic connection to repo man because i didn't see i didn't see this movie until like a few years ago i think it was yeah it was about three or four years ago that I finally you know, got a copy of Repo Man, watched it, loved it, and 
yeah, again, become one of my favorite movies since then. Yeah, and like that's what's great about doing a show that talks about older movies is I as I love hearing you know, like, you know, hearing other people's stories about when they came to the movie and how the movie came into them and what time of their life that they experienced it. And just like, yeah, like some of my favorite movies that like, you know, we've covered recently, they're old movies, but they're movies that I discovered like five years ago. You know what I mean? So, I mean, yeah, that's what I love about I mean, I love movies, period. To me, there's really not such thing as an old movie or a new movie. Like, I mean, I get what that term means and what it refers to. But, like, if, if you can sit down by yourself in a room at your house or at a theater or just however you experience the movie and, like, it speaks to you, it moves to you, or, like, you can relate to something in it, like, yeah, like, that's the power of cinema. And, like, uh, you yeah. know, I, I, I hope we don't lose that because it, it seems like more, and there's nothing wrong with television. I love television, too, but I kind of fear that we're going from... Uh, a society that used to revere and love movies and talk about them for decades to like now we have so much entertainment at our disposal that movies get forgotten yeah, about quicker and kind of sucks. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely gone. It's definitely reached an oversaturation point, especially with all the streaming services and whatnot. Because people yeah. are always like, "Oh, have you watched? Have you watched this? Have you watched that?" It's like, "Oh, it sounds interesting. Uh, where can I watch it? Uh, it's on this streaming service." It's like. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass. I know, I know, and, and like, I I know I know local video stores, or whatever, didn't have everything back in the day. But at the same time, like, I miss the day when we were all like, for better or worse. And I realize it's not, a, it wasn't as convenient, and it wasn't whatever. But for better or worse, like, you could say, "Hey, have you seen this movie?" And somebody like, "Oh no," and you tell your friend about it, and then chances are they would probably see it next time they were at the video store and probably rent it, you know, or at least have it in their mind. But like, yeah. It's kind of sad, but back in back in my day, you had to go out to your car and drive to a building if you wanted to find a movie to watch. And you had to pay money for it. You couldn't just click on it or pay pay a monthly fee. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly how I feel. And at the same time, like I feel like just like anything, as much as entertainment is there to de-stress us and take us away to a different mindset or whatever. Uh, at the same time, when you had to work to find a good movie, once you did find it, it was so much more rewarding. So, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, man, I want to thank you. Do you want to point people to uh, Gamer Guy? Yes. Uh, if if y'all are interested, I run a web- website called Gamer Guys Reviews, where I review video games, as the name of the website would indicate. Um, yeah, you know, I've been on bit, of, on bit of a hiatus just to figure out what to do next with the website, and uh, I'll be back to writing reviews soon. Uh, as for when, uh, you can probably expect the first reviews uh, by next week, or well, what will be next week uh, whenever, whenever this episode gets uploaded. Uh, I also do interviews as well, so if you're curious as to where you can, you can find reviews, interviews, and all sorts of other stuff that I do, the name of the website is GamerGuysReviews.com. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel that's also called GamerGuysReviews, but at the moment, it's still under construction. I'm still trying to work some stuff out. Uh, you, you can probably expect uh, video reviews on that channel within the next couple of months, but like I said, it's it's currently undergoing maintenance. So if you want if you want the real deal, you want the real stuff, go to the website, not the YouTube channel. 
Yeah, I really like the website too because I was gonna say um, I really like the uh, interview you did from the guy who worked at LucasArts and THQ. Yeah, yeah, that was really yeah, good. John, yeah, John Knowles. That was that was a great interview. Yeah, he, he had a lot of interesting stories to share about his experiences in the industry, and that's kind of, and that's kind of something I actually want to do. That's one of the goals I have with the website slash channel this year, is to interview more people who've worked worked in the industry and you know like to hear the stories about working on all these different titles and whatnot. So we'll see how that unfolds as the year progresses. Yeah, I think I think that's a great space that not a lot of people have uh, tapped into because like I'm I'm a little bit of a video game uh history fan myself and uh and like like i was like a sega fan back in the day and like you know following the company all the way through the dreamcast era and whatnot and being a fan of its developers and whatever and i uh, just read every bit of history and then like reading this interview kind of took me back to when i used to follow all that stuff and like yeah just like you know we have favorite films and stuff that you know we loved as kids or whatever uh, and we always want to know the behind the scenes and hear the writers and directors talk. Like, I think it's about time people start focusing on the favorite games we had growing up and listening to the people and kind of, you know, because there's a lot yeah. more that goes in behind it. You know, I mean, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Some of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in the video game industry. So, like, I thought it was very cool that, you know, your your website was like, you know, checking in on that kind of aspect of it. Thank you. No problem, man. So, yeah. So, again, William, I want to thank you for joining me. Um, I, f- I, I feel like a punk again <laughs> I feel renewed what? let's go do crimes yeah like get sushi and not pay for it <laughs> so yeah so everybody thanks again for uh, joining us uh, here in the new year uh, even though as time marches on we're still going to rewind you back to uh, you know all these great films and hopefully you know you guys have your uh own history with this great classic repo man i loved revisiting it so everybody thanks a lot for joining us and we'll see you next time here in the movie graveyard